Thank you, Ben. Call your attention before we get into the message this morning. Uh, in the bulletin, if you picked one up, and if you didn't, as you're going out, make sure that you grab a bulletin. Again, lots of information about ways that you can be involved in ministry, some of the changes that we're making in the ways that we are um, kind of coming back together as a church, coming towards the end of the pandemic what we pray. Uh, there's also a list of people to pray for. I mean, one of the really wonderful things about belonging to a church family is that you have people who are praying for you on a daily basis. So make sure that you grab that bulletin before you leave. A lot of information in it that is important to your kingdom life. Um, there is inside of it a sermon outline, all the major points in the scriptures that we're going to be using going over this morning as we think about baptism. On the back is what we call the MPG. As you know, miles per gallon is about how far a car can go on a gallon of gas. MPG for us is how far we can take the sermon or take it further down the road. And the M stands for memorize, a P for prayer, and G for glorify. This week we're going to have you memorize Romans chapter 6, part of the passage that Bill read for us just a couple of minutes ago. It's a specific thing that we're going to ask you to be praying about this week. And then in the glorify section, uh, typically we have something for you to do during the week. This week it's going to be more contemplative and reflective, wanting you to answer some questions about your own baptism. And after we talk about baptism this morning, if anyone here wants to be baptized, wants to obey the, the call of Christ to enter the kingdom of God, I'm going to be down here at the front. Come down and talk to me, and we will baptize you today. Our world, friends, our world does not need more conservative thinking. Our world does not need more liberal thinking. What our world needs is more kingdom thinking and more kingdom living. This is why we are thinking about the building blocks of our faith. We, we have already seen in this series a passage out of Hebrews chapter 6 that these are the building blocks that move us forward, that, that encourage us forward, that enable us to go forward to maturity in Christ. And we're calling it building blocks. If you think about the building blocks that you grew up with, it was really kind of the first curriculum, learning curriculum that you came across or came in contact with. When you had these blocks and you were playing with them, you may not have known it at the time, but you were actually absorbing information. You were learning colors, red, green, blue. You were learning your one, two, threes, and you were learning your ABCs. And as you mastered these very basic pieces of information, it enabled you to grow in your knowledge and to, and to mature in your understanding of the world and to grow up and to be responsible for yourself. Believe it or not, it always goes back to those very first lessons. They form the foundation to what, for what we grow up into. Now, the theme statement for our series, because the same thing is true about our faith, the theme statement is this, you cannot attain maturity until you retain the elementary. You can't attain maturity until you retain the elementary. And Hebrews chapter 6 sort of lays this out for us. I'll read it to you again. This is the New Living Translation. 
And this writer says, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again, having to relearn, having to be reminded over and over and over again. He says, let's stop going over those basic teachings again and again. Let's go on instead and be, become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds, placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, cleansing rites. We're going to be talking primarily about baptism this morning. The laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, and God is willing, we will move forward to further understanding. Now what this writer has done is given us the building blocks or the the open door to maturity in Christ. These six building blocks to our faith are foundational to being able to go forward and develop as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. He begins with repentance. We've talked about repentance before, right? Repentance is reorienting your life. When you become a member of God's kingdom, a member of God's family, become a disciple of Jesus, you are put on a trajectory for life. Wherever you begin that life, the end result and the trajectories between here and there, you are to look like Jesus. Repentance is continually reorienting your life back to God and likeness in Christ. We talked about faith. Faith is becoming increasingly comfortable with increasingly trusting God with our lives. It's more than just intellectual assent. It is the formation of a life that trusts God. It gets out of the boat and it walks on water. This morning we're going to talk about baptism. Next week the laying on of hands. I would encourage you to be here next week as we talk about that. At Easter we talked about the resurrection and then we're going to end this series with judgment and then one more lesson that talks about how these six things actually open the door, open the gate for us to become mature disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. That it's not just what we think, but it's what we think and how we live in the world that we live in. Now, baptism. Baptism is a foundation of the Christian life. In fact, the Bible does not recognize an unbaptized believer. The word baptism is, is, uh, is not an original English word. It's a, a Greek word that was transliterated over into English. You take the Greek letters, turn them into English letters, and we get the word baptism. And it means literally to immerse someone. And this is one of the reasons why we literally immerse people into water in a baptistry. And if you're really not sure what baptism is all about, it can look really, really weird. Now, Ellen and I, when we were living in Brazil as missionaries, uh, there was a period of time in which we did not have a building, we did not have a baptistry, and so when someone wanted to come to Christ, enter the kingdom of God, have their sins forgiven, and they wanted to be baptized and become a disciple of Jesus, we, we didn't have a building or a baptistry, so we had to take them to the downtown capital of Brazil, Brasilia, Brazil, capital uh, city, Central Park. There was a big lake there. And that was where we would baptize people. And you can imagine what that looked like on a Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon after church. We'd all show up in our bathing suits and we'd walk to the edge of the water. Some people would start singing as I or Basil, my colleague, would take the, the person wanting to be baptized into the water. And then, and all of this is in Portuguese, we would talk about the importance of baptism. And there were people that saw this happening and they could hear the singing. And so in their canoes and their kayaks and their, their john boats, they would float closer to to what we were doing in order to kind of understand it, see what the commotion was all about. 
And so we would explain what baptism was all about, and then we would baptize people, and they would go down into the water, and they would come up, and everybody on the shore would get happy, and they would start clapping, and they would start shouting, and they would start singing. And for us, it was a change of life, but for the people who were watching it from the shore, it looked really strange. Though you and I both know that with baptism, there's something more that's going on than just getting wet. And so in the time we have left this morning, I want to, we're going to go over this quickly and not really in depth, but I'm going to give you more of an exhaustive scope of what baptism is all about. You can use the outline to go study or use it later to share the gospel with somebody. But number one, it is an act of faith and not a work. It is an act of faith and not a work. We should always, my friends, talk about baptism as a response of faith. We can get baptized all we want. But until God's decision for people to be saved was made, we, we could never save ourselves regardless of how many times we baptized ourselves. We believe that our salvation is a gift. It is a grace from God, which means gift. When Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, he's reminding them of the greatness of, 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 of their salvation. That it was not something that they could do themselves, but it was something that God brought into their lives because of His mercy, because of His forgiveness, because of His rich love. And so in the second chapter, he says, because of His great love for us, and His love is great, God, who is rich in so many things, but particularly here, He's rich in mercy. He has made us alive because we were dead with Christ Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. We drop down to verse 8. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a, say it church, gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. You know, when Jessica and Jordan were were tiny little kids, babies, you know, like everybody else who's had babies in their house, we had a high chair in our dining room. Sometimes it was in the the little kitchenette area, and that was where we fed our babies. And so, you know, like every other household that entered into, you know, family and, and raising children, you know, you worked for a living, and you made the money, and you were paid after you had worked. And with this income, you would go to the store and you would buy the baby food, whatever it might be. You know, if, if, uh, if it was a busy week, it was in a jar called Gerber. If you weren't busy that week, it might be something that you literally cooked. But you had to go to the store and buy the baby food. And then when you got home, you had to take it out of the bags and put it up on the shelf in the pantry. And then when it came time for the baby to be fed, you didn't say, well, just crawl right into that high chair. You had to literally go and get them out of the crib and put them in the high chair and put a, a bib around them. And, you know, you get to cook that food. Sometimes it was to heat it up, the orange stuff or the green stuff or the other stuff. You know, and you heated that stuff up and you got the spoon. And then as a parent, and I'm going to be undignified right now because I'm going to show you what I did with my kids. You know, you stick the spoon in and then you go, mmm, 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 it's so good. You're trying to convince a kid to open their mouth, accept the food, and you act like it's a plane. And finally, the kid either opens or doesn't open their mouth. But depending on how they respond to the food, they get fed or they don't get fed. But nobody in their right mind would say the kid fed themselves. It was the work of the father or the mom in this case. The same is true when it comes to baptism. 
Baptism is an act of faith. It is a response of faith to the gospel. Baptism is not a work that we're we're meriting our salvation because we fulfilled a step. It is an act of faith. We are putting our faith not in our works, but in the working of God, which is what Paul talks about in Colossians 2. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, that is, immersed, buried in the water, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him, that is, Jesus, from the dead. Friends, baptism is this tremendous act of faith that recognizes the profoundness and the beauty and the majesty of God's love, His grace, His gift of salvation and reconciliation and redemption and and reconciliation. And all of these things are because He chose to do it in love. And we respond in faith through baptism. Number two, it's a rebirth into a new life. You know, so many times when we talk about baptism, we talk about it as the end game. That after baptism, there's nothing left. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's not called a graduation. It's called a new birth or a new life or a rebirth in the Bible. And one of the places where we read about this is in John chapter 3. One night, this very famous Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus comes and he chats with Jesus. And you know how the story goes, right? He says nobody could be doing these things unless he was from God. And Jesus cuts to the chase and he says to Nicodemus in verse 3, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now it could be translated born from above, but Nicodemus understands it as born again. And that's why he asks the question. I mean, he's scratching his head and he's puzzling his puzzler. And, and he goes, how can a man enter his mother's womb when, he is, when he's old? And Jesus says, no one enters the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Which is baptism, where we are immersed in water and we come up out of the water and at some point we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. At baptism, you are born a child of God into the kingdom of God. And you don't stay a child, though. That's what Hebrews 6 is trying to get across to those original readers. Is that as you come into the kingdom of God, yes, you're a child, you're a babe in Christ, is what Paul would refer to the Corinthians. You know, you, you're, you're not good for meat yet, you've got to deal with the milk. But the point of being a child is to grow up. The point of being a kid is to become a mature adult. And that is the same thing that happened when you are born, a babe in Christ, a new birth, into the kingdom of God. It is about growing up into a disciple of Jesus. And that's why baptism launches a new life through a rebirth that has a new identity. Now, it makes sense that when you're given a new life, that that would include a new identity, right? How many of you, when you got married, realized that you were becoming a husband, new identity, or a new wife? I mean, all of us, right? I mean, that's why you have the ceremony. You began that ceremony single. You end that ceremony somebody completely different. You have a new identity because of this new life that you're entering into. Same thing happens with a job. You enter that day, you're hired as 
as some guy off the street, Joe Schmo from Kokomo, that one's for you, you go into the office and you have this new identity with a new job description. You're now the CEO or the supervisor or the manager or the president or, or something. I mean, imagine, imagine a cat that has been working at fast food for 10 years and all of a sudden he gets hired by the White House to work in the call center. He has a new identity. He has a new place to work. It's a new life. But what if he drags that old life into the call center and when somebody is calling the White House, he asks, would you like fries with that? New life means new identity. Your life aligns with that new identity. And this is one of the reasons why Paul writes all of these letters, all of the New Testament, helping people to understand that if you are a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, your life is to look like this, like Jesus. And so to all those churches in the region of Galatia, he says, in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. When you come out of the baptistry, you are on a new trajectory. When you profess your faith and you repent and you confess that Jesus is Lord, He is now the King of your life, and you experience the forgiveness. You can go to bed that night knowing that your conscience is clear because everything, Everything that you can remember and everything you can't remember that you ever did wrong in your life, that has been wiped clean with God's slate. But it also means that you have a new identity. From that point forward, you're to look like Jesus. You clothe yourself like Christ. I mean, why do people get the same haircuts and try to wear the same fashions that, they're, that, that famous people wear it's because they want to look like the rock star or the actor or the actress or whoever it is that they're trying to look like, their hero, the person they want to emulate. With a disciple, it is the same thing, except that our hero, our pioneer of the faith, the one that blazes the trail for us, the one that opens the gate for us into the kingdom of God, is the one that we clothe ourselves with. So that when people look at Mark, they see me dressed with Christ. And this is one of the reasons why God puts His Spirit in you. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, one of the things that Peter preaches, I mean, the Jewish people in Jerusalem that day, they become convinced that 50 days prior, on you know, Pentecost back to, to Yom Kippur, the, day of, or excuse me, the Passover was 50 days. That 50 days prior, that somewhere in their thinking, in their way of putting facts together and understanding the world as it is, they had actually, the people that were supposed to know God and were waiting for the Messiah had actually killed the Messiah. And they are completely crushed. The Bible says that they are cut to the heart. And they go, what, what do we, how do we get out of this mess that we have made? We see what our lives can do. We see our, the possibility of what, the wreckage that we can bring into this world. We actually killed the Son of God. And Peter says, you've got to repent, which means you've got to come to your senses, as we talked about earlier. You've got to reorient your life, not away from God, but toward God. And you've got to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we talk a lot about the forgiveness of sin, and don't get me wrong, that is a beautiful, incredible thing. But that gift of the Holy Spirit is a game changer for you when it comes to your discipleship. You do not have the power to live like Christ 
before baptism and you don't have the power afterwards on your own. What it takes is the gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers you to be able to change the things that on your own you cannot change. That is how you get the new identity. Think about the fruit of the Spirit. All of the fruit of the Spirit that we talked about at the end of last year are the ways that you're clothing yourself with Christ. It is love and patience and kindness. It is gentleness and it's self-control. It's all of these attributes of the Christ that now we are being transformed into because at baptism we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's also participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Something happens when you're baptized. Paul writes in Romans 6, in a passage that uh, Bill read just a couple of minutes ago, we were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Paul does not say that baptism is symbolic. Paul does not say that baptism is symbolic. He describes it as a participation in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And as you go down into that water, the old you dies. And when you come up out of that water, it is like resurrection of Jesus. It is a new you who lives forever. And it is a washing away of our sins. Before Saul became the Apostle Paul, he was the enemy of Christianity like you and I have never seen an enemy of Christianity. It was to the point of killing people. And even going out of town to throw them in jail and to persecute them. And one day Jesus gets his attention on the road to Damascus by suddenly striking him blind and knocking him to the ground. He goes on into Damascus where he sits in blindness for three days. What do you think, Paul? What do you think he's thinking about? He's been persecuting the church, you know, all of the stuff that he has done to try to wreck the church. And all of a sudden, Jesus, who he didn't believe in, the Jesus that he was trying to do away with Jesus' church, contacts him in this miraculous way. And all of a sudden, he realizes what everybody on Pentecost realized, I see what I am capable of doing and becoming. And he's in darkness for three days. And he's, oh man, oh man, oh man. What have I done? Man, oh man, oh man, why did I participate in the lynching of Stephen? He was right. Man, oh man, what is God going to do to me? Man, oh man, what is God going to do with me? And then a a fellow by the name of Ananias, a Christian in that city, called by the Lord to go to Saul. He tells Saul, who later becomes Paul, that God has chosen you to be a witness to Jesus and the gospel. And then he says to this guy with blood on his hands, who had completely tried to destroy the kingdom of God, 
who's been sitting in darkness wondering what in the world. He says, get up and be baptized. Wash your sins away. Can you imagine what that felt like to Paul? Relief? (laughs) Oh, baby. Reprieve? Absolutely. Deliverance? Rescue? Forgiveness? Like being born again? New life? Second chance? Yes. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why Paul will tell us our baptism is something that we must never forget. In the first two verses of Romans chapter 6, Paul's dealing with some people that just, hey, you know, why don't we just keep sinning? You know, there's a lot of grace out there. It's a gift of God. We can't save ourselves. You know, God loves us. Rich in mercy. Blah, blah, blah. You know, why don't we just keep on sinning? It makes God look good. And Paul says, you forgot in your baptism. Think about your baptism. In your baptism, that's when you died to sin. That's when you were united with Christ in a death like His. And if it's in a death like His, then you're united with Him in newness of life. That is the resurrection, which is what we're all headed towards. Don't forget your baptism and the implications of that for your life. You are now saved and forgiven. You're now embraced as a child of God. You are reconciled. You are redeemed. All of the language of salvation. We, we no longer are enslaved to sin. We have been given a new identity. We've been given a new power within us that helps us be transformed into the likeness of Jesus so that we can say that we are clothed with Christ. What it is, friends, that baptism does is usher, into a new, usher us into a new life. Our world needs more Baptized people. I'll just say that again. Our world needs more baptized people. I'll do it again. Our world needs more baptized people. We need a world that is filled with people that look like the Savior. We need a world that has the value system and the love and the ability to forgive, and the ability to become one with other people regardless of their differences. We need people who do not resort to violence but to love when it comes to making the world a better place. We need people who have been released from their sin. We need people who are not driven by guilt but have been driven by redemption and forgiveness and the love of God that changes everything. We are people of the resurrection We are people of the resurrection. And our baptism ushers in a new life. And that's what the world needs. Let's stand and sing.